0: Welcome to Managing Marketing and today I'm uh, sitting down and having a chat with Phil Feerland who's the Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer at Publicis Sapient Australia. Welcome Phil.
1: Thanks Darren. Good to be here.
0: Phil, um, one of the areas that uh, you have been focusing on, and certainly an area of interest, I guess, for a lot of businesses, is this idea of being able to create ecosystems and marketplaces. Yep. So let's, uh, let's start with, what's the, is there a difference between an ecosystem and a marketplace? Yeah, uh, look, there is. They're often confused, um, or
1: they're often intertwined. Concepts. Because uh, I'll, I'll talk you through them, but they more often than not, when a business um, takes a marketplace model um, out into the world, it does it on top of an ecosystem, and there's a reason for that. So a marketplace is is what you know it is. It's a place where you know it brings buyers and sellers together, mm-hmm. um, and so the. The bulk of the household tech firms, you know, uh, are marketplaces. So eBay or Amazon created consumer goods marketplaces. Airbnb creates a hospitality marketplace. Uber, a transport marketplace. Kickstarter, a crowdfunding marketplace. Mm -hmm. And in their digital incarnation, they're really products of the internet. So uh, most of them emerge in the 90s and they emerge out of um, you know, essentially the collapse of of uh, the classifieds, but they also emerge out of, you know, businesses like the Yellow Pages and Census. And so you get things like Craigslist or those kind of pure listings sites starting first. But a marketplace itself is a type mm-hmm. of e-commerce site that brings buyers and sellers together. And it brings them in ways that uh, marketplaces in the real world haven't been able to do before. So they take things that were local and make them global. They take things that were temporal and they make them on demand. And now they're not just selling products but services. Mm. And so over there, the kind of life, they've gone from listings into things that are more um, vertical, so marketplaces for jobs, marketplaces for dating. Uh, And those are really just kind of listing site with better user experience and more photos.
0: The, the big thing is that the technology enabled this, didn't it? Yeah. You know, the, being able to build a platform, a, a, a technology platform that people could access readily yes. through in the internet yes, uh, really is what enabled it. The application, though, is quite interesting because it's such a diverse range of yeah. things. And, and I guess, you know, from a, my perspective... You usually think of marketplaces as selling products. Yes. You know that, yeah, like Amazon. We think yep. of Amazon as it started off with books, and you yep. know they've just expanded that. Yep. That, um, yeah, which was why people called it e-commerce. But there's a part to it that goes beyond just the transaction, isn't there? Because you are creating an ecosystem or a marketplace mm. where people can share and provide feedback mm. on their experience within that. It 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 feels more accountable than perhaps the real world marketplace or the real world business ecosystem. Mm. And is and that part of it? Yeah, it is. Is it just convenience or is no, it also No, 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 it,
1: it's much more than convenience because it it um they do a couple of things. Marketplaces fundamentally change how people shop and online marketplaces um do a couple of things. They they solve a problem of discoverability, um, and they solve a problem of discoverability because they allow you to kind of do more than just read. Uh, you don't have to read all fifteen pages of the job guide. You can, you know, you've got the
0: jobs that you want, so you can you put, can search and you can and, search and, and set and up searches filtering. And, yeah. um, uh, so the user experience is is easier. Yeah, more it's more informed. It's more yeah.
1: personalised. They solve a problem of, um, you know, to some extent, uh, quality control or standards. Um, So, you know, if you think about dating sites, um, it's as much about, you know, in their initial phase, maybe less so now where it's um, on demand, but in their initial phase, (laughs) swipe left, swipe swipe right. (laughs) um, A lot of the work that dating sites did was really not only doing matching but also kind of doing ratings yes, in the same way that Uber does now. So they solve that other problem of marketplaces, which is, you know, is this a good seller? Um, and then I think the, the third thing, and this is more for sellers rather than buyers, and it's the same, I guess, the same concept as social media, is it connects up um, communities Around the world, or without essentially without geography, that are communities of interest. So, if you're a you know, a passionate camera nerd or you're a passionate uh, mid century furniture enthusiast, you don't just have to rely on two shops, yeah, you know, you can rely on on the world of a community, and so it's able to connect those up. So, they're, um, you know, that but it's interesting if you think about each of these waves is about. Some kind of new technology being cracked that allows a new problem for the customer to be
0: cracked and And that goes into a new phase. And that's the thing, isn't it? Because ultimately, you know, from a technology point of view, you could there's so many things you could build, but the most successful ones actually overcome some sort of customer problem yes. or or roadblock or yeah. or creates a new customer experience that yeah. they may never have even thought they could have. It's true. And, um, you know, Uber is a
1: great double-sided example of that. Um,
0: For all their bad publicity. For all their bad publicity. And, yeah. you know... It is actually a quite a good model because of that two-way feedback. Yeah? Well, it's the two-way feedback, um, but it's also... It
1: solves some basic problems that people have often had with taxis like, will it turn up? That oh. just, will it turn up? And then when will it turn up? And, and then some level of transparency, you know, so it just solves that tick. On the flip side, you know, the same technology they've used to do that, um, and, and this is their real power, is it enables them to organise casual labour. And no one, you know, fundamentally, no one's been able to do that at scale before, before Uber. Um, you know, because you just it's very hard to kind of do that. And that, that's what the, the taxi marketplace is, is casual labour. Mm. And Uber's been able to kind of organise casual labour in a way that kind of cuts out union interference and you can have your point of view on that. Um, and so it's, you know, but that's fundamentally a technology uh, that's been able to solve that kind of double-sided problem.
0: Which is why you get uptake. You know, consumer uptake because yes. it's solving a, a particular problem for them. Yeah.
1: Whether it's solving it profitably or ethically, that's, you know,
0: <laughs> to be decided. Now, going back to, you know, the fact that because Uber is a good example of a service. Yep. Um, but, you know, some of the biggest uh, marketplaces are primarily product Driven. Yeah, they are. Know, when, when we talk about, you know, like um, uh, in China, you know, uh, Alibaba yep. um, and uh, the T-Mall, yep. you know, this is an online retail experience. It just happens to allow yep. a whole lot of companies to actually come in and join their um, shopping mall, you know, yeah, in correct. a way. The
1: products and products and products. They're definitely, um, if you track you know, venture capital firms are a really interesting way to track the progress of marketplaces, and um, the venture capital firms have, you know, um, funded this you know big wave of uh, consumer goods marketplaces and products. You know, you're not going to say selling a product is not easy, um, but it is probably easier than a marketplace for services. And so, what we can see now is these venture capital firms are looking for, okay, well, where are the next marketplaces coming from? Um, because there's there's not so many products left to marketplace and those are off, you know, scaling. And so we can start to see money going into services marketplaces, you know, and, and also really interestingly into regulated markets. So um, okay, what? aged care, healthcare, yeah. community services, legal, clerical. Um, And lots of new models are appearing across things that you might, you know, basically associate as human services, so education, trades, health, aged care, clerical or sales work. And the reason they're going into there now, the reason they haven't gone into there before is because it's really hard. The reason they're going into there now is they're all highly fragmented. They're mostly inefficient. They're really difficult for consumers to discover what they need and to be and assured navigated, and yeah. navigated to be assured of quality, and so we'll start to see this mixture of either startups or bigger organisations, you know, that that we work with, inserting themselves into that value chain and then, you know, introducing kind of new standards and.
0: A good example, sorry, Phil, to cut you off, but um, uh, a good example of that would be education, wouldn't it? Especially tertiary education. Because we've had quite a very traditional recruitment model. You know, there's the undergraduates, which are just pouring out of, uh, secondary schools around the world because mm-hmm. you know there has been this pressure on universities to think more globally or mm-hmm. regionally then you've got the uh, the postgrads yep. that are in the marketplace or the uh, the later education so it's a, but it's been a very sort of old school model and well old school is the word for it it's you think about most universities um,
1: you know that, that are using models that are a thousand years old Um University of uh, Paris models for faculties and things like that mm-hmm. so um, and in some ways there's you know there's a good level of um, anti fragility in that if it's lasted a thousand years maybe it's good but it's it's uh, something is hey, or, or it's not, broke, or so it's why not I broken or <laughs> but it but it is broken you know and we can see that it's broken in a number of ways you um, One is we, you know, we do a lot of work in the higher education sector and we we track this and we can see consistently over time the value that students get from, or the perceived value that they see themselves getting from a degree and the the time and costs that they put into that are just, you know, stretching apart more widely than ever. Um, We can also see that um, there's a kind of a gap between what employers and... Um, students want in terms of skills and speed and relevance and then what's being delivered, which is this quite you know, traditional set. And then the third thing is um, you know, trying to work out how to break the link between education and certification mm. um, because um, that, that's the kind of nexus that keeps it traditional. Now, once people start to just want the skills and the knowledge and they don't necessarily need it to be certified, or once it doesn't need to be three years to be certified or the same seven models, then that marketplace can be a lot more modular. When it gets more modular, then people will be able to pick and choose you know the way through and you know? and we're
0: starting to see that mm. I mean there's there's examples of universities starting to offer subjects
1: subjects that, that can, you can
0: be pick and, pick and mix and, choose yeah. And, yeah. and that will go towards ultimately qualifying for a you know a, a degree or a postgraduate yeah. degree yep. but you don't necessarily have to engage on the basis of doing a degree no. it's purely for training or upskilling skills. Yeah, yeah skills
1: yeah and so in education, what does the marketplace look like? The marketplace is probably um, going to be more, you know, you can, you will see it happening first on the skills end where people may want a piece of paper to say they have the skill but they don't necessarily need a BA. Um, and if it's happening on the skill end, then it's happening at that nexus between employers and, and, and skill bases and, and students that almost want some kind of training or upskilling or real-timing.
0: Yeah, well, especially because uh, all the people that are focusing on, and they call it the future of work, yep. but it's actually working now, now. Um, are saying that, you know, we'll have to stop this model of training before we enter the workforce and largely then getting on with the job. Yeah. Because it's going to be a process of constantly Yes, as we go through our careers. So that needs a totally different model. It it needs this uh, a more flexible it's model. It's a flexible model, but it,
1: it's more like um, and, uh, you come to cars in a segment. It's a similar thing of this almost lifetime subscription model, and what we would see is that you you may have a subscription to a university, and that allows you to dip in and out over the lifetime, you know, of your your working career, your practice.
0: Mm. So, you've just said we'll get to cars. Let's get to cars now <laughs> because it's a fascinating area. Yeah. In that, I was talking to someone who said the number one mm. issue uh, that many car makers have is that they're interested in payment gateways. Mm. Now, but then you say to yourself, why would automotive manufacturers be interested in payment gateways? And it's because if we have autonomous or shared vehicles, yeah. then Who's going to be paying for car parking and tolls and things like yeah. that? So they're wanting to find how the car that doesn't have the driver or doesn't have the one driver mm. is going to be able to automatically pay for all of these expenses. It's an interesting change in the way we've thought about cars. So,
1: um, you know, one one thing I don't think a lot of people know is that car manu- so OEMs, or car manufacturers... Um, make you know, let's say 80% of the revenue off the sale of the car but they make something like this is right now make make something like 50 or 60% of their profit on what happens after right. they've sold the car yep. so um, service financing you know blah blah blah, blah, blah um, all those things over time now if uh, people are buying less cars um, as in they're buying cars those cars last longer so that's you know, that affects it. Um, you know, pe- younger people maybe are less likely to just even buy a car full mm-hmm. stop. Maybe they're just renting. So, um, uh, and, you know, cars are safer, so there's less, you know, uh, things going on. And um, so wh- what you end up with is a situation where the, the car manufacturers is probably looking at a scenario like the education thing where... The relationship is much more like a relationship with a brand, Mark. You may have a relationship with a Honda or a Toyota or a Nissan. And maybe the metal, the hunk of metal, gets replaced every three years and the software gets updated every week. Mm. Um, but you're, you're just paying for that over time. Or, you know, maybe you're just even renting
0: so, like the subscription model, like the
1: subscription actually. model, and so when that happens, um, uh, you know, I, I do think fully autonomous vehicles are probably
0: a way away,
1: a way away. In the meantime, though, what it means is that um, the cars themselves are these working pieces of software that you, um, you, you should expect to be able to do a bunch of things for you in the same way your phone does. So if you thought about where mobile phones were for, know, 10, 15 years ago, and, you know, some basic functions, and there were apps on them, but you sort of had to go into a folder and then into another folder and stand next to a um, Wi-Fi or a 3G thing for something really basic to work, that's kind of where in-car personalization is now. But it's, it's going to be, and then if you posit it forward a few years to where apps were and where they are now, that whole wave is going to happen inside cars as well. Mm. And so, um, you know, cars collect a huge amount of data about themselves and their running and their geography and their patterns and the energy, all those kind of things. But they're also, particularly as they get more intelligent in the way they drive uh, themselves for you, you have more
0: attention, you have more time, you can do more things with them. Mm. Um, so because it beca- goes from selling a product to uh, l- licensing an experience. Absolutely. So And, and I say licensing, because you're not really selling it. You know, the model seems to be heading towards people paying a subscription. Correct. In the same way as they would to their you know streaming TV.
1: And so you end up with this ecosystem where you're heads-up display on your um, Bentley, no mm-hmm. doubt. Your heads-up display on your Bentley, Darren, is, is the equivalent of your home screen on your phone. Yeah. And so there are firms like ours, and we're doing this right now in Australia for firms, you know, designing, developing, prototyping and testing. What are the features and the applications and the experiences that will be going on? The heads-up display. Um, what do people want? What will they find value in? Are we going to do that or are we going to partner with, you know, radio station or publisher or traffic Mm. company or something to deliver the content for that? What's the financial model for that? And then just like every other, you know, computer inside a car is a computer with a content management system and working software to
0: kind of program all that. To create that personalised, customised experience of you travelling in that vehicle. In in that vehicle. And
1: um, I think if you read... Uh, if you Google this in in consulting world, it's probably called like passenger economy, yeah, or some such.
0: Okay, concept. so so an area that for me is absolutely ready for disruption is energy utilities. Yes, because first of all, we've got ridiculous numbers of pricing models. Yeah, we've got a system that largely locks people in. Yes. Um, that switching feels like a pain. We've got companies out there that are profiting from, phone us up and we'll find you a better deal. Yes. And you know that they're they're doing it on the basis of whatever commission that they're going to earn from giving you the better deal. Yes. So where do ecosystems or marketplaces work in, say, power? And when I say power, I mean, you know, um, electricity uh, electricity and gas, but also all utilities, because I heard just recently that... uh, I think it was AGL was looking at buying a broad, broadband supply yes. to actually bundle all this together. How does this work as an ecosystem or a marketplace? So, I imagine it's more marketplace. Um,
1: yeah, it, look, it is more marketplace. Um, there might be an ecosystem it is, underneath it that actually... Well, there, that there is. There, there's multiple um, threads to this. The, 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 the longest-term one that nobody has resolved yet is that, I think, for, let's say... 20 years people have been talking about connected home, and there's some, you know, where we all have a Jetsons home, and uh, the my own Rosie, (laughs) (laughs) and um, so the telcos think that they might be able to own that, the energy companies think that they might be owned to be able to own that, the tech companies, you know, the your television, or you know, they thought they might have a go at it. Even um, you know companies like Schneider Electric that do your um, you know your powerpoints and your, yeah, your you wiring, know, your wiring. They yeah. thought them. So everyone is sort of thinking, well, ultimately you know that's you know um, that's the iron throne is being able to win connected homes, and nobody's really been able to crack it yet for for an array of reasons. So then you have this second. Um, you know, force, which is... uh, We we call it open futures. And you can see it um, in open banking now. And and it's this desire for governments want more transparency from corporations and more competition between corporations and more privacy for citizens. Mm -hmm. And so what that means in banking is the open banking legislation where February next year... Um, the uh, the banks will have to open up their customer data, so that other you know so that if you want to share your customer data to another supplier or a competitive firm to you know provide you an exciting new service or a competitive rate offer, you can do that. And so once you start to do that, then there's a big ecosystem that will spring up off the top of your data. That legislation is going to roll through energy next, and so when it does. Um, the 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 energy retailers and the energy distributors will have to do exactly the same thing. We'll have to open up um, using APIs all of your customer data okay. so that any competitor can, if you want, can come with in my or, permission. With your permission, absolutely. Right. And so when that happens, then then you have this, you know, this platform that's actually, it is an ecosystem, but in this case it's been forced upon those companies. Um, to allow innovation and choice and competition to come in now what we can see which is getting back to your point is um, that if you are a bank and you're thinking about open banking and how you can use it not just to defend but you know to attack and to advance yourself you might be thinking well you know that the how can I move into energy and energy pricing or energy insurance right it, after energy,
0: Though the banks same, Knowing the bank strategies, they'll be thinking about entanglement. They will, How can I get <laughs> more fingers into my customers so they can't move? Yeah. After I love energy, that term, it entang- goes into telco. And yep. so all three
1: of those um, sectors uh, suddenly become a lot softer at the edges between them and they become a lot more open and so what we can see is, um, you know, scenarios where um, that kind of means anyone can play in that space. So people can have a go at being retailers or bankers or telcos, or telcos can try and be energy firms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it it allows, I guess, the you know the the kind of constraints of the boundaries between categories to go away, and it may make it. Uh, much more uh, feasible for somebody to actually do the connected home. And so one literal example, um, if you think about the interaction there, is that um, many Australian households in the next couple of years will install solar, install batteries, install you know, basic kind of smart meters that essentially turn the homes into mini power plants that feed and receive power from the grid and go back and forth in a much more sustainable way when you do that you end up with whole neighbourhoods be they residential or commercial that could be that are essentially microgrids it all sounds very good and very sustainable uh, the hard part of that is you know batteries cost money uh, solar panels and installation of solar panels cost money smart meters cost money running it all cost money so a microgrid needs some kind of microfinance and the one company that you know is most interested in the financial value of the big asset called your home is bank. Uh, so there's there's this nexus point between energy services, telecommunication services, financial services, and your home. And most of that is probably gonna be unlocked through this
0: this combination of data and technology and this opening legislation. So this is why you know we've heard for what is it two or three years people going on and on about uh, blockchain will be blockchain. ultimately the way that I'll be able to control my uh cus- my data my personal data yes. by it'll be you know in a blockchain that I can then release to certain people under certain conditions yeah
1: yeah correct it it allows um, collaboration. You know, it enables a much greater degree of security and collaboration. Because one of the biggest barriers to this kind of stuff is, you know, data privacy and, and permanency.
0: So it allows that, and also data validation. Data validation. Because you, you know, you could have all sorts of what do they call them bad actors. Bad actors in the system breaking into the system and creating yep. all sorts of mischief. Because and it is,
1: I guess, it's interesting because blockchain we can see starting to, I won't say normal, it's a fair way of normalising, but um, if you think about S-curves in technology, something where we can say... Didn't you mean the gartner hype curve? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean an older concept. Oh, right, okay. So S-curve, something, you know, starts at the bleeding edge, mm. gets to the cutting edge, scales to some level of maturity and then commodifies. Yeah. Um, and so we would say, all right, well, if, you know, Two or three of our 10 clients are coming to talk to us about blockchain and its applications. That probably means it's starting to hit the cutting edge. It's normalised enough to to kind of do things with. Mm-hmm. And it's all, it's basically anything that is contractual and functional contractual. And so the whole energy grid is just contracts, contracts between companies and the, and the marketplace and then contracts between each other and then contracts with you. Um so that that's kind of a, a monty for all this stuff, the same way telcos are.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And in fact, if you think about our own industry, media buying is essentially, you know, thousands and millions of contracts every day.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, that can all be transactions. Transactions. Yeah. You know that um, some of them are um, more validated than others. And so <laughs> <laughs> oh, very nice. <laughs> we can see many applications for for blockchain. Not necessarily in, you know, automation or efficiency, but just in, in, in making markets work better.
0: Well, and the core of the blockchain technology is about validating and securing information yep. because the actual technology is to make it virtually impossible to replicate or to yes. uh, duplicate yes. uh, information. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It was... Um, think about a recent instance. So... Is a, a startup that allowed you to subscribe to to, to multiple newspapers around the world. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have to subscribe to fifteen; you could just subscribe to this one, and it was essentially a consortium or a joint venture. And they've been talking about it for years, but they could never quite do it because opening up their paywalls through one outlet would mean um, that all their customer base would be open and transparent to each other, mm. which that absolutely we're just not going to do. Um, once they'd worked out how they could use blockchain then they could legitimately go into a consortium together, knowing that it would increase their customer base of people paying to get behind the paywall, but, you know, newspaper A in Boston was not going to be sharing its, you know, customer base with newspaper B also in Boston or in New York. So it's, you know, again, it's one of those technologies that's just going to boost this whole, you know, ecosystem business.
0: It also um, creates the opportunity for people, organisations, to get closer to the mythical single view of customer, Mm. doesn't it? Because uh, I I had an incident this morning with, uh, (laughs) and, and it drives me crazy, utilities, financial services all of them yes they want to do business by email and phone because it's easier yeah but you have to validate who you are even yes. though they've asked you to call them yes or they've called you yeah and it just seems ridiculous that they don't have a way of being able to identify you when that's their choice of how they want to do business
1: it, look it is it's also infinitely hard to actually do in practice in a company. Single view of customer, you know, has been around for, let's say, 15 years and probably will still be around in another 15 years. As a concept, not as, as a, concept. a working yeah. model. Yeah. As an <laughs> aspiration. Yeah. As an aspiration because um, it, is, it, it is like, you know, uh, we do a lot of work, I guess, with data strategy and helping organisations work with data. And to some extent, you know, master data management and data warehouses and data lakes and things like that are, you know, the easy part, the hard part is still, still, and always, how does this data get collected? Who collects it? Mm. Um, what are the, you know, and it, it's people doing things in organizations.
0: So I know this is a, uh, a something you've identified, but that, let's talk about financial services. Mm. Not so much from the fact that fintech seems to be driven by the startups, mm-hmm. but more about what it's what's required as far as a platform or a marketplace for banks. Because it seems to me that we see finan- in financial services, marketing is out there telling us all through their marketing communications mm-hmm. that, you know, all they care about is us as a customer. Yep. Then over in the IT department, the regulatory area, they're locking down all our data, collecting huge amounts of data, yeah. not really sharing with that anyone, so that they can actually interact with me as a human being. Yes. And then there's a separate area as well that's then making plans for, you know, what products I may want when they don't have access to the data of what I've been using in the past. Mm. But they're really developing it from the point of view of where are the opportunities for the bank to make the maximum margin out of selling me products that I may not necessarily need. What's the problem with big organisations? when it comes to actually creating Mm. an ecosystem or a marketplace? Is it purely the siloed approach that we have? That's a big question. So the the, the
1: siloed, I guess, approach is part of it. And siloed is the wrong way to think about it because no one aspires to be a silo. No one says, all right, our org structure is going to be a silo.
0: Well, no, I disagree. It's what they
1: organise themselves around. What's what they choose to organise themselves around. So, um, you know, they might organise themselves around segments or functions or tasks. The thing that you're talking about is the tension between, as a customer, unless the big or little organisation organises themselves around the customer, then their experience is always going to be, to some degree, fragmented. So... Um, one of the most famous, I guess, case studies in this area is uh, work we have done and still do with the bank in the UK called Lloyd's, and it's probably if you look at, um, you look it up on Forrester, it is the gold standard of customer journey or journey-led transformation, and it's essentially taking the bank and organizing, you know, the the entirety in a way of the bank and its operations around customer journeys end to end so the very front stage of who you talk to and what's on the screen all the way through to the very backstage of policy procedures technology infrastructure so all the way through one journey Mm -hmm. and all organized around it you know so let's say one customer kpi so if it's business lending it might be time to cash and so that whole Uh, when you do that you're essentially redesigning an organizational structure to say well yes you sit in sales yes you sit in policy yes you sit in blah 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 but the way we operate as a company is we've designed this journey and this is this is kind of this is how this team works through on that end-to-end process when you do that then you start to get a company that's actually organized around a customer and their outcome and then you get to that if you can't Know, do something of that scale then to some degree even if you do have the single view of customer technology the experience might be fragmented or the um you know the products or the policies might be fragmented um, because you're not anchored around mm. Then not because you're not designed to be the the legislation stuff makes it a bit um trickier but it you know legislation as a context it's always mm. tricky it's um, and I would say, if anything now, for banks, if you read... Um, you mean
0: in the post-Royal Commission in world? The,
1: in the post-Royal Commission world, what you have um, is APRA requiring of these banks. And if you look at it, what it's requiring, you know its main thrust is not um, liquidity or cash reserves. Its main thrust is how are you as a bank
0: treating this customer mm. and how can you prove you are doing the right thing by them. In their interests. In their interests. Which you would think any business that wants to be successful would put the customer's interests first. You would,
1: but then if you work in a big company, it's not, you know, there's very few people you ever come across that want to do the wrong thing by a customer. Mm -hmm. Like, you just... Who, who meets those people? You don't meet those people. What you have, what you can end up with are misaligned incentives hmm. or you can, up, can end up with data that is just inadvertently not shared or data that is overshared or, you know. So
0: it's the corporate ecosystem is the, where the fault is. It's where the fault is. But it's where the work is. Yeah. It's where the work is. Phil, it's been terrific having a chat, Chat. thanks for coming by and, uh, and sharing with us the insights and ideas around ecosystems and marketplaces. Just on that, um, most of these we access through apps. Mm-hmm. Which marketplace is the number one app on your smartphone? <laughs>